Hello and welcome to the second installment of our Stalktober podcast, where we're looking at the Stalker video games and the works that inspired and shaped it. Today we're covering Andrei Tarkovsky's 1979 classic, Stalker, the film that probably established the aesthetic language for the series and stands as a landmark sci-fi classic in its own right. I'm your host, Rob Zagney. Today I'm joined by Gita Jackson. Hello, I'm Gita. Patrick Klepek. Uh, hello. <laughs> Yeah, sorry. He's not wow. doing. He's not doing an accent, folks. He <laughs> nope, was just. Was <laughs> he was taking a sip of coffee. I thought I had it. I was like, I'm not sure if he's gonna go to Kato or me first. I'm gonna gamble on a Kato, <laughs> and I gambled. I gambled wrong. I should have thrown Damn. a bolt ahead yeah. of me, attached to a, a towel. Um, <laughs> let's see what happens. Uh, and now, belatedly, our producer Ricardo Contreras. Hello. Hello. Uh, so that was an accent. Week. Was that an accent? That was no. an accent. No. No. Did I say hmm. it weird? I just said hello. You said weird. You said you know, a little bit weird. weird. There was a little hollow. There was a little. This is Cardo. Just was Welcome to podcast. <laughs> I appear. <laughs> uh, so last week we discussed the Strugatsky's roadside picnic, and of course they are credited here as writers on the film as well, but. While this is an adaptation of Roadside Picnic, it's not exactly a faithful one. Uh, Gita, you mentioned this is something that strikes you about this film, which is the direction that Tarkovsky takes this inspiration from what we encountered in the novella. Well, yeah, the production history on this story is is truly incredible. But I mean, one of the most interesting things about how this is adapted and how the adaptation works and functions here is that this was a movie made in... Uh, like the early 80s in the Soviet Union. And it's shot on film, shot largely on location, um, almost entirely on location, I would say. <laughs> and it uh, is going for a, a visual approach that I think is pretty common in Soviet films of this era, which is very naturalistic, very, very cinema verite, very much trying to use the actual place where they've shot to their be- best advantage as possible. So if you understand, like, this is what the mindset that Tarkovsky was going into into making this movie, you understand why, like, a lot of the things, like, the capital E events that occur in the in Roadside Picnic simply just can't happen here, right? Like, there is no special effects happening. Um, there can't be uh, instances of someone throwing a rock and then it just shoots down to straight to the ground in a right angle. Because that isn't the kind of story that Tarkovsky is trying to weave out of the material that is in Roadside Picnic. But if you read Roadside Picnic and you're like, the thing that you pick up on are like, oh, this this whole, you know, the zone is so crazy. All this crazy stuff happens in the zone. This movie is going to feel incredibly unfamiliar to you because what it's more interested in is adapting the overall arc of that story, which is a story of a true believer trying to still believe. You know, and like here mm-hmm. we're seeing the stalker character for Roadside Picnic in sort of that beginning, um, useful, uh, at part of his character, but also confronting some of the more abject and like miserable conditions that he encounters later on in that story. And you can see how because it can't tell the complete narrative arc of like the three different vignettes, the the movie itself is trying to give you the feeling of reading that story without literally translating the exact events. It's about vibes. Yeah. It is indeed about vibes. And that <laughs> makes it 
Uh, it gives this movie a a really interesting feel. I think my, the word I'd use to describe it is dense uh, and perhaps exhaustingly interpretable. Uh, like the the number of things you can draw out of shot sequences and uh, like 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 scene settings are. It, it's it's practically innumerable, and that's before you even start getting to uh, the way this movie unfolds as a series of almost like staged monologues uh, yeah. from from the characters who inhabit really specific archetypal points of view. Uh, so I am curious uh, for those of us who are seeing it for the first time uh, how how did we all get along get on with it, uh, Patrick? What was what was your take on Stalker? Just first. <laughs> Gut reaction. This two hour and 41 minute Soviet film. Please tell me uh, how much you loved it, Patrick. Did you get spooks? I want to, what I want to say is uh, I tried. Um, (laughs) Rob, I think Rob did sense at the end of, uh, what was it? Waypoint radio. When we were teasing that we were about to to get ready to watch this. He's like, "Uh, so even by Rob Zachney standards, this movie might be a bit of a slog. In the moment I heard that, it was like <laughs> I saw the red bells and flags going off in my room. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I, yeah, I didn't particularly care for the film, which is less to say less about the film as much as it is like my own sensibilities on. I've tried to watch so many movies that are in like the art house cinema. Like it just doesn't. I just they don't do anything for me like this. It's a beautiful film. Historically, I can understand its importance. And there's lots of interesting things in it. But I spent a lot of time on my phone and then yeah. we put it down and be like, I'm good. Like, you need this is your job. Fucking Look at it. Watch this. Look and then at, Look at 10 it. minutes later, I'd say like an email ping on my computer off to the side. But like, well, I should probably check and see what that is. Um, <laughs> like, truly, Patrick, though, I get so anxious watch uh, when I'm about to watch a movie like this because I have ADHD. And I like like and enjoy these experiences. And I don't feel like this movie is a slog at all. <laughs> I'm like riveted when I watch it. But there's always this moment of hesitation when I'm like that runtime that's 200 that's two hours and 41 fucking minutes (laughs) can I even sit still for that long so I I I I feel like um I watched right after the what I watched this for the first time with David there you go there's the ding um (laughs) if we watch one of the special features on the Criterion Edition that we bought um that was from a, a film critic writer guy who describes and sort of a half hour video essay, his journey from going to see this in the theater site unseen in like the the 80s and hating it, just fucking hating it. And then hating it so much, he got obsessed with it. And now he loves it, (laughs) which is, I think, perhaps the only valid path that like a person who does not interact with this kind of mode of filmmaking generally would find into to enjoying this film and like getting the actual experience of watching this film like finding that enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there's like plenty of, you know, like this, watch this movie and realizing how, I mean, within the first 15 minutes, I was like, oh, I'm going to bounce com- completely yeah. off this. Like it, it's like, it communicates upfront what yeah. it is, like <laughs> yeah. what it's, what the, what mode it's operating in. And yeah, I just, this I, man doing nothing in a bar. Yeah. 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 Long, un- uninterrupted shots of people sitting. Love that shit. <laughs> that shit's Gita food. Like I love it. Right. And it's, it's <laughs> like, you know, there's no, there's no bait and switch here. Like it yeah. was like the, the, mo- the movie is what it is. And like, just continues to be that for, for nearly three hours is, but it is one of those films in which like, 
I would listen to this podcast or I will read about it. And like I, I spent, you know, I spent a long time on like Wikipedia pages and links reading about the film. The product, like this movie fucking killed oh, people. Dude, like, we got to talk about that shit. <laughs> yeah, we can get there. It's, it's all just to say, like, like, despite the fact that like th- this movie did like basically nothing for me, like it is endlessly interesting as like an artifact, as like it is a, as a moment in cinema. It's just like the mo- like the moment to moment filmmaking itself is like, I, I know that I'm not going to like this. And so I can't really hold it against it. Mm-hmm. So then I just spent a lot of time reading about it and like everything that surrounded it. And like, that was kind of like my in to like interfacing with it as a, as a film. Kato, had, had you seen this before or are I, you also a first time? Uh, I had not seen it before. Um, so this was uh, my first time watching. Uh, All right. I really. So let's hear the opposite take. <laughs> yeah, no, I really fucking enjoyed it. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, Fucking, um, I, you know, I've probably mentioned this once or twice before, but I, there was a different life where I became a cinematographer, uh, if I, if the, the Rhode Island School of Design had let me take their film program instead of the photo program, I was the photo program instead, uh, the... The the wait hold on so side, much side side Kyle, oh, did you yeah. did you get saxophone facts fing, fat fingered by essentially the, essentially yes damn they they, they gave God they gave, damn there's like the six week uh uh pre college it's basically for high school juniors in to mm-hmm. take be, before they go into senior year where you can go to an art school and you take classes for a one like three credit class but basically it's try out like see what their pedagogy is like at the schools like see what the teachers are like see what the vibes are like i went to risd's and they had a, like a tiered a a, a, a multiple choice what what's the, uh, a ranked choice system for uh, what type of uh what yeah. department you wanted to go in that my ranks happen. were uh photo and then uh were film first then foot then photography um and they put me in the photography one. Damn. That happened to me <laughs> when I went to the arts magnet school that I went to in high school. Yeah. Um, where I ranked film first and then writing second. And I'm a fucking writer, baby. <laughs> <laughs> different lives. You could have led different lives. You could have yeah, been my so DP, like, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, like, I, from the beginning, was just, like, really into the the way that this movie was shot and how... Um, especially in the, the first kind of opening act of the film, there's so much put into the, the kind of, uh, uh, shapes that are being made by the walls around you, that bar, the triangular bar, bar, like the way that it like kind of the perspective is off because one wall is kind of like more straight to your side and the other one's kind of going off to the left. So, you know, it's an odd shape from the get go. And then that triangular, the shape of the triangle and three keeps coming back over and over again throughout the entire film. But it starts there at that bar and just being like, wow, this space is weird. This space is odd. Mm-hmm. What's going on here? Um, but yeah, but even like, in that beginning credit sequence, the interplay of light and shadow and the way that the light itself is graded in that sepia tone. Oh my God, the tone. Creates the, the golden, absolutely golden yes. light makes these destitute spaces look magical like from another world like really giving you visually a signpost of what how you're going to have to buy into this movie if it's going to be for you well and i I think the affinity there is also suggestible because i feel watching this film like between this and bergman 
you've seen the origin story of countless bad student art films um, <laughs> yes. where there's a yeah. lot of people who are like, I don't have a lot of resources to work with, but if I lay out a collage of interesting objects and slowly work a camera over it and then hold on a character just regarding it, that's art, baby. Mm-hmm. And the weird thing <laughs> is, in the hands of like Tarkovsky, it, it is. is. Yeah. <laughs> but you'd also see like, this is harder to carry off than it looks. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah, I know. Patrick said he read about the production history, but this was like people just went to a decrepit place and then worked nonstop for an extremely long period of died time, and then many of them got cancer and died. Yeah, <laughs> like later on, just realized we all got the same lung cancer, like w- including Tarkovsky. It's like whoops, <laughs> whoopsie. Like the zone, the zone, whoopsie, the zone seeped into our lungs. Yep. Um, <laughs> well, in like, a big. A big part of that is down to the fact that this is also a cursed shoot uh, in another regard. Like, oh, my original, God, reading, like, they had to God, reshoot reading the about this, like the, the fucking film being like produced wrong. I can, oh, my like, God. I'm pulling my hair out while reading about it. Absolute worst nightmare. Like, it's a really worst nightmare scenario. But yeah, what we're saying, Rob, you have the good. Well, no, this. I mean, it's <laughs> like the fact that basically they shot an entire movie on film and then in a lab error. It was exposed incorrectly, rendering it allegedly useless. Though I, I saw some things where people were like, it may not have been as useless as it appeared, but either way, they also had to change locations uh, due to one of their locations being struck by an earthquake. And so this is why they end up shooting basically everything, I think, in different parts of Estonia, including apparently famously like some dodgy locations Mm -hmm. from a toxic chemical uh and hazardous material standpoint which is sort of where the 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 legend of stalker is the killer film uh begins there may be something to it because like by all accounts like yes there's a lot of set decoration and design happening in these scenes but also a lot of these buildings just look that fucked up Yeah, obviously these sets are very immaculately arranged, especially when you get actually inside of the building later on in the film. Like, I mean, this movie, this movie literally is how people derisively describe Lord of the Rings and that it's a bunch of people taking a very long walk (laughs) and then they turn around (laughs) like it's it. Um, But once they get inside of this building, you know, clearly a lot of things are just definitely arranged. But then there's also some shots where you can tell that the actors are just interacting with props that are in the room. That were there, like a, a lot of also brackish water that made me very concerned anytime oh anyone God. stepped in it. <laughs> like, oh that okay. <laughs> so, not really a horror movie, but I swear to God, there's certain things I could feel, and I could feel that water when they start wading through it, <laughs> and <laughs> the fact that it's so much higher than it looks. So every time the actor takes a step, takes a step forward and sinks deeper, like my gag reflex just mm-hmm. continues yeah. to like rise higher. Mm-hmm. Um, Horrifying, like. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Andre Tarkovsky. I'm not doing that. <laughs> uh, do we? Do I have a stand-in? Because you're sending him in. Yeah, body uh, double tap. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, but here's the other thing I, I will say, uh, Patrick, because I had actually a similar first encounter with this film. Uh, because first time I watched it, I went into it completely blind. All I knew was I really liked them stalker video games. And <laughs> so I watch this and I'm like, all right, here they yeah. go. Uh-huh. They're going to be stalking. <laughs> They're going in that zone. And I keep waiting for like, it's going to get pretty fucked up, right? And it oh, the, is. The third, the, but- third time, the third time a bolt comes out, I'm like, okay, right. So we've been building to 
at least one moment with these bolts, and the, the movie's like, no. Absolutely no moments the with the bolts, and it's not. like, okay. Like, I, tr- Literally. I, try, I did try really hard to, like, to like lower, not my expectations, or, like, what am I getting here? It's like, no, it's, like, vibe of Stalker, not adaptation of yeah. Stalker. You um, can- and still, even having done that, deeply unfamiliar with the work and, like, what it was attempting to accomplish relative to what its ver- what what its take on an adaptation is relative to, I think, how these days we think of, like, an adaptation, which yeah. is a much more literal object. Um, uh, uh, yes, it is probably the kind of thing where, like, if I went and saw this at a cinema and it's like, hey, this is this movie's broken up into parts anyway. Like, we're, we're going to stop. We're going to, like, have a conversation. Or if I watch it in class where it's like, yeah. that's how we had. Like, I can imagine watching this in a cinema class in college and getting a lot more out of it where it's like, hey, part one. Let's talk about what's going on in this film. Whereas, like, just two hours and 43 minutes. Like, for one, when I told you, Rob, I was going to start watching it, I just assumed it was roughly two hours long. And this was a two hour, 43 minutes. And I was like, oh, boy, I'm going to have to eat lunch and not walk my dog in order to fit this in before the podcast. <laughs> the extra 41 um, minutes just comes out of nowhere. <laughs> and then, like, shot, shotgunning it, like, with those expectations not properly set, which I think are genuinely kind of hard to set until yeah. you've actually seen the thing or... Or, or, you know, like Gita and Kato, like, have spent a lot of time watching, like, adjacent cinema where you're just like, oh, okay, I'm going to settle into the mode for this type of movie. Yeah. I don't have, I don't have, not having had that mode, not knowing where the gear is in the car, like, going through it a second time, like, knowing more of that. I, I don't know that I'd come away being like, hmm, this is cinema. But I'd be like, okay, like, I get it. Like, I, yeah. can, I can engage with this more on its level, um, which was, yeah. like, just difficult to do the first time around. So the other thing I always say about myself is that I have a degree in cinema studies. And so when I look Mm -hmm. at a a movie object like Stalker, I'm literally looking at it and seeing the line of history that, go away, alarm, um, that led to this movie being created, right? There's a a, a legacy of movie making going all the way back, especially and specifically in Russia, which is the seat of a lot of the cinema tropes that we understand as you know what makes a video just a, a video different from a, a movie a film i think that the man with the camera eye was an absolutely mind-blowing movie uh black and white sign film that i watched in in college at oberlin in the film program there that really shows you the power of montage and how russian filmmakers were specifically using montage um to say things with images that were not possible to just be said through dialogue. Um, you know, this is, you know, Battleship Potemkin also is like a, I mean, honestly, that movie is a fucking banger. You should all just watch that. I think it's just on YouTube. Um, and then the one with the everyone falling on the steps that following that, that, that one Russian film with a huge sequence. No, that's Potemkin. That's Potemkin? Yes, the stairs. Yeah. Anyway, yes, that's what I meant. That scene especially, that just holds up now. And like you can tell why. It's because they invented these techniques that are now then put into play in other movies that we watch just normally, like normal ass movies. Like every single Hallmark movie you've seen is inadvertently, unknowingly taking inspiration from Battleship Contemkin. Uh, don't quote me on that, but basically, yes. Uh, so when I look at it, I'm, I'm looking at something else. If you're approaching this just as like a regular movie to watch, this is like, a, a, it's a big step, I would say. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you just watch like freaking Shang-Chi and you're like, what's next for me? Stalker, you're going to have a hard time. <laughs> okay. You don't need to call me out that hard, Akita. Like, 
I understand. I'm a. I'm a, I'm a to be clear, you should build up with Black Widow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, well, anyway. I did. I was that. You know, yeah. uh, that, that new Marvel movie is not available on non-theater platforms yet. So go yeah. cut it to me in a couple of weeks. Yeah. You so, know, it's funny though, because I you were talking about Stalker, about how you were so interested in the uh, the cultural history surrounding Stalker, but then the experience of watching the movie does not really didn't really hit for you. And that's literally exactly how I feel with the Dark Tower series. Just wanted to throw that out there. <laughs> I want to hear you tell me what is in the in the books, and then also to listen to a lot of other critics talk about what's important about those books culturally as objects, because they mean a lot to a lot of people, people who I think generally have good taste. I've given it a shot reading one of those, and you know what? I think I'm good. And that's like well, that's I, 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 think it was a, I think it was like a little bit different here is like it I kept until I fully internalized I saw like reading like a summary of the you know the film ahead of time to, to kind of like set some sort of headspace was like oh this like it's it's a classic sci-fi film and also philosophy and I was like all right if we're gonna wait those two things like the sci-fi part is just a pretext to <laughs> yep. be a philosophy yep. film yeah and yep. And that's why it's two hours and 43 minutes long, because it's a bunch of monologues about philosophy and how these three people, how they arrive here. Like the sci-fi is is just a high concept to yeah. get you in the door to like have people talk in, in a room. And like that's what it like took so long for me to crack was just like, OK, if I just knew more of that again, I don't know if that is like ends with me being like, I love the film, but it like. Then at least forwards, like, what is this movie actually about? Like, it just happens to take Stalker and then use that as a way to explore, like, larger thoughts about, like, life and fulfillment and, yeah. and happiness more generally. And then so, even even there, like, the philosophy really is, like, for cinema nerds, like, it's, it's a pretext to take your camera to an interesting looking place <laughs> and then just put it down and let it run. And, like, that, that, too, is also an aspect of this, which only a particular subset of people are particularly interested in. Though, up to a point, I would say also the thing that I find really resting about this film is that I like I am a sucker for stuff like this, where like, here's a character who is also an archetype who's going to embody a worldview. And instead of having normal human conversations, you're going to have entire worldviews just sort of like bouncing off each other in dialogue. And you're going to have dramatic monologues sort of unpacking what characters are reading into these moments. And Stalker kind of with like after the first sequence it does kind of lead with that and and starts doing that for the rest of the film which is at various points in this journey characters are going to stop reflect on their journey so far how it reflects to the state <laughs> of the world their hopes for the future and human nature and what we can even hope from for ourselves uh in in the future and that works for me, but it worked a lot better for me the second time where I was like, okay, so I know for a fact now that like a bloodsucker is not going to lunge out of, <laughs> out of one of these doorways. That dog and, like, is not going to eat one of these people. I saw yeah. that dog and that dog came back. I was like, Rob, we just hunted some dogs in that stalker video game. Like I didn't get a good look at that dog, but like, I don't know what that dog's going to get fucking up to. That dog doesn't get up to anything. And if I think that dog comes home at the end. Like, All the so, dog did was make a wish. <laughs> Yeah, it it made it made it, it brought a pure wish. And it's I want people and then it followed them out of the zone. Um, so. I, I think going to um, where, where the film starts sort of well, even the opening of this is so interesting because we get this sequence where. We, we we see the stalker abandoning his wife uh, as he sort of is like 
Oh, sneaking back to the zone today. And she's like, not, the fuck? Not real sneakily. Not, not, a, not just a whole, it's just not, she's like, not bye. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> and he's a guy who, yeah, he just isn't, um, he is at a distance from his family and uh, is eager to get back to the zone. The, the, there's a lot of things you can pull from that encounter, but I think the line that uh, really jumped out uh, was, uh, I'm imprisoned everywhere. Uh, this this notion that he's not worried about being like booked by the authorities and like thrown back in the slammer for stalking again, like he is always a prisoner except in the zone. And from there, we see him walking across the rail yard to meet with one of the guys he's going to guide into the zone, uh, who are going to come know as the writer. And I think the you know we we catch the writer in mid monologue as he's chatting up a lady he picked up from somewhere. Um, and he's, he's sort of expressing really the sense of modern ennui. Um, you know, is, is, as he says, the world is absolutely dull and that's why there's neither telepathy nor ghosts nor flying saucers. And there cannot be anything of the kind iron laws control the world and it's intolerably boring. Uh, and then, Another line he delivers later in this sequence, he says, over in the Middle Ages, it was interesting. In every home, there was a house spirit. In every church, God. Uh, and like this is kind of the way this film is going to unpack. At various points, these characters will just start declaiming. But usually, it's pretty interesting because there's also always a double game being played as to, and the writer puts his finger on this at multiple points, there's the double game that you're playing both with your audience and that when you're with yourself, where you're trying to say, these are my actual thoughts and feelings. And then there are your actual thoughts and feelings that exist underneath that. And yeah. they're, they're inaccessibility to you, uh, which has become a major focus in a story that is ultimately driven by a wish granter that exists at the center of the zone. And it's, it's interesting. Um, it was, I mean, for so many reasons when you were having, say, talking about that, it struck me how how much this <clears throat> particular series was being begged, begging to be made into a video game of some kind where characters are always being declarative at all times. Um, but so the movie does like a, a sort of a, a cool magic trick, essentially, where the characters are making these declarative statements about the zone and the nature of life in relationship to the zone and in reaction to the zone. But we don't, you know, we don't see any of the cool stuff from Roadside Picnic that we were expecting to see. The only thing that is sustaining are the audience's ability to interpret this as an alien place is the way that the characters are reacting to it, in particular the stalker, who has like a reverent, almost holy faith in the methodology he uses to make his way through the zone. It's like showing you that the zone is only a real place if you believe in it in its entirety, while also making you embody that belief. Which adds another flavor, I think, especially to what the stalker says about the zone and how, impo how important it is to follow him exactly. Well, you'll only ever have the same experience he is. He is having the same kind, which is what apparently these people want to have. If you, like him, completely give yourself in to this thing. Well, and 
in some ways, this is a film about like crises of faith, like religious metaphors is, is all over this film. And at certain points, they will just start directly quoting uh, from from scripture. But they do embody different sorts of faiths that are being tested. And so, yeah, you, you have you have the stalker whose faith has has become the zone in in a lot of ways and what he believes the zone is doing to people who enter into it. He, he says, uh, again, I think this is what you're alluding to. There's a point where he stops everyone and tries to explain like how the zone works. And he says, it's a very complicated system of traps, let's call it. And all of them are deadly. I do not know what happens here when humans are our way, but if, but once people show up, everything starts changing. Previous traps disappear. New ones emerge. Safe places become impassable. Um, and then his, his conclusion is that he thinks it is the thing, it is us, it's what's in our heart that causes the zone to change. And the only people it lets pass, he says, uh, are those who have no more hope. And this is this is what passes for his faith. And what's interesting is I think it takes a while for the other characters' faiths to emerge, but my take on it is you have the the, the scientist who is, who's currently having this crisis of, on the one hand, the zone is this marvelous natural or paranatural phenomena uh, that should be studied and like held sacrosanct. But on the other hand, it's potentially incredibly dangerous and maybe shouldn't be allowed to exist where humans can get at it. Um, and what the writer's crisis seems to focus on and, the writer gets all the biggest and longest, uh, like best speeches in this film. This is very much a film about like writers being on their own bullshit. God, really back to but, back with Alan Wake with this shit. <laughs> it, it occurred to me. Yeah. Like, like his, his crisis is sort of twofold. It once there's his sort of frustration that you can't access the real of, of, of what's inside you. And two, um, he's sort of shaken by the fact that his successful career has convinced him more and more that it's it's all fraudulent, and that in fact, rather than accomplishing anything as a writer, um, his success is in fact uh distorting and warping him. Uh, Gita, you 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 had something there? Oh no, I just feel like I I mean I think so much of this movie as a series of images rather than actual dialogue that people say. That the thing that is becoming clear to me is, like, I, I think so much about that scene right in the beginning, right after that speech, where they're all like, the the writer and the scientist are like, well, the house is right over there, we can't we just walk to it. And then that's when the stalker gives that speech. And you see them then try to walk to it. But there's no special effects and there's no, I mean, the cinematography is beautiful, but the thing that convinces you, the viewer, that they can't just cross the field to get to their end goal is their own fear. And you see them, you know, where they're talking about, like, the thing that you're saying about the people are always speechifying and monologuing about their declarative sense of who they are and how their place in the world. But the thing that unites these three characters is that they all give in to that fear, the fear of the zone, that they all want to, in a way, believe in something that is bigger than themselves and bigger than their petty problems. 
because you see the stalker, you know, before and after this trip through the zone. And it isn't that his life is unremarkable, but it's not, he is not in his home, the same man that he is in the zone. And it's belief in the zone uh, and fear of it, like a, like a fear of God that allows him to be that person. I think it's, I think it's interesting, uh, looping back around to our roadside picnic conversation at the end of that was our discussion of like, okay, why does this character keep going back? And there was like a discussion of like, is it just purely the oppressive economic forces, socioeconomic forces that are like sending him back into the zone? Why he keeps going back there as we revisit this character as they get older and older. And that's not like, it's like super clear. It's a lot of like reader interpretation. And I kind of came down on the, on the end of like, well, he just identifies as a stalker. And so he feels at home there, but obviously like Natalie Cotto had like different, like weighed more on like the economic circumstances pushing that. Whereas this movie is just like, no, it's actually, it's religion. And he has, he does identify with it, but like, it's, it's a much more personal external Mm -hmm. externalization of why the zone is appealing to this to this man's personality, to his identity, how, where he fits in or doesn't fit in with his family and the circumstances around him. And I found that to be a fascinating like layer of characterization that really doesn't exist in the novel, at least like manifestly. It's like yeah. just left for you to kind of figure out how you want to interpret that character. Um, whereas here it's like, no, 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 no. Like this character, I mean, the whole movie is like, we're going to tell you. But like that, that part, specific part of that character I thought was interesting for yeah what their motivation is then to keep coming back and how that has played out through their crisis of faith as explored, you know, all the way through the, through the end of the film. I mean, why do well, we I all think s- stay in media? You know, do we, do we believe in journalism in some ways? Like I, I find myself talking about journalism and sometimes in a way where it's like, is this like a job to you or is this like a calling or a faith? Like maybe I should chill myself out when I talk about what I want media to be, because realistically, this is just something I do for like nine hours every day in order to get a paycheck and health insurance. Um, it 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 honestly, I feel like your interpretation of who the stalker is and why they keep doing that stalking is closer to mine, Patrick, because it it does feel like there is a certain point in which this character across. I haven't actually played any of the stalker games and I've uh, read Roadside Picnic and watched the movie because I'm too afraid of how esoteric those games are to play them. Um, it's not as bad. I, I would say it, it was helpful to have Rob as an in-person Wikipedia, mm-hmm. um, but I, I think I, I think you would probably okay. be fine. So, like it's, it's, they're not, they're, they're, they're weird. I, but I not, think Dwarf Fortress Gita has got this. Yeah, that's, <laughs> and, and, and that's, yeah. yeah I mean, that, and, yeah. and you've played enough immersive, like yeah. I, I think you, it's really just like, interface and like what are the little quirks i i I genuinely think you would be like when i was playing it and i got up to oh rob look at these convenient fences that are like funneling me toward this thing and i was like oh okay like this game has more boundary boxes than had been the way people talk about stalker and then the reality of stalker itself um it's not a huge difference but like it's not as intimidating as well, they gotta get past that first fight. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like that first fight fucking sucks. But uh, <laughs> once, you, once you do that, you'll be you'll be okay. Yeah, I play more I, a lot more games than I used to. Also, so I feel like you know, I mean, another thing that I believe you, the, what you just said about the stalker and how he self identifies as a stalker, and that is a part of what is it, it is something that is wrapped up into his his faith in this movie. But I feel like mm. the stalker in Red Side Picnic and stalker in this in this movie, although they are being like the, the the reason why they became a stalker is necessitated by an economic situation. The reason why they do that instead of being a service worker, like they they feel 
more powerful as a stalker than they would if they submitted to the economic situations in a different kind of way. It, and he said he says as much, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, like that's expressed by the character yeah, yeah. in the film, as opposed to it's sort of like I I read it as implied. Yeah. In 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 the book, um, like you you had options to do other things, yet you come back here despite the fact that like being a father or being like a husband or a partner, like that that isn't enough for you. Like yeah. the zone, <laughs> your real partner is is out there in <laughs> in the zone. It reminds well, me a movie. little bit about how I'll live. Sorry, Rob. Just reminds me no, a little no, bit no, how no, like. Video game, a certain sect of subsect of video game people find something magical and ineffable in video games and become obsessed with that ineffability rather than accepting that these are objects made by human beings and are imperfect and aren't inherently alive. The code is not alive in the way that they want it to be. You know, we encounter that, I think, in video game fandom, especially not it's not only video game fandom. People get this into movies and music as well. But I just remember thinking, you know, when before No Man's Sky came out and that whole thing happened, People were talking about that game as if it was going to solve all of the problems in their life, that they could escape into somewhere where they would feel personally important. And I think that this movie taps into the strength of that desire for everyone to feel like something that they do matters to people. Well, I think so. The movie certainly literalizes this by the fact that the opening is in that sepia washed black and white Mm -hmm. uh, where... The first thing we see him do, it's a great shot, but it's also devastating. Literally, when he walks out and leaves his family behind, his daughter wakes up and is sitting there in the bed looking at the vacant space where her father was. And then, Uh, because we are in the elevated realm of art, we're also going to see his wife writhing on the floor, uh, (laughs) wailing and rending garments. That's me Um, every time David has to leave the house. (laughs) (laughs) Don't go get a bagel. Don't get a bagel. Come back, please. <laughs> also, it's going to make it all the more remarkable when she breaks the fourth wall at the end of the picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah. And just like lays it out for you. It is so funny, these, yeah. these scenes she gets. But, um, you know, so the entire opening of this movie is is shot in this. You can't take your eyes off. Like, it's 1979. They got color film. They got a lot of color film. Mm-hmm. And you're like, why the fuck does this look this way? Like, this is so strange. Yeah. And it's also not a normal sepia either right like it's a it's a it's gold it's golden yeah um which comes back around at the end but if you remember the the description of the monkey that's part of it right Mm -hmm. she had golden fur they had to change that part but (laughs) (laughs) instead it's a instead Uh, it's a shawl yeah um but but then it's literalized when they finally get into the zone and with just a single cut you're thrown into the world of color again. And like, you know, if there's any doubt about how this character feels about the, the real world outside the zone versus what he finds in the zone, like that weird off kilter color of the opening. And then the shock of like recognizable reality uh, hitting when you're entering the unreality of the zone. Like it's all there. Like this is, this is the first time we see this character, uh, sort of coming fully alive. Um, but yeah, as as we'll see later, his motivations are even... There's the devotion to the zone, but also there's this um, desperate desire to be like... Uh, what's the what's the way to put it? I wish... I, this, is, this is a part where I, I wish I had a little more like religious backing, but it's like 
he his the thing he loves is bringing the sinners to the door of paradise right like it's it's like i hesitate to say he's priest-like because in a lot of ways he's he's not but uh there there is something about like the thing that motivates him about the zone isn't just love of the zone it's this belief that like he has this holy purpose to guide these unworthy sinners and that is his view when he when he says like it's only people who uh, have given up all hope, which is a very nice way of saying, like, you need some really broken, fucked up people yeah. to get to the center of the zone. <laughs> and he loves bringing them there. Y'all and, need like, Jesus. And guess what? <laughs> like, he's Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. So there's that part, too, where it's like it's it's about the zone. But like when the writers sort of been fishing around this idea of like there's something inherently selfish about this quest. There is, but not the thing you think. It's not the fact that he gets off on being important and being the guy that everyone has to listen to in the zone. It's the sense of being a vessel for some form of redemption. Yeah. Um, and at the end, that, that faith is cracked, too. Yeah. Um, and he feels that it's been it's been all pointless. Yeah. And it reminds me, of, I mean, those themes most recently in media that I've encountered them, Midnight Mass is the place where, where that is most potently present Hell in culture. Yeah. That okay, show. So now, whips. so now we'll just talk about Midnight okay, Mass. Okay, great. Like Midnight Mass podcast. podcast. Yeah, Gita and Patrick's horror podcast, where we just talk about different horror movies we've seen. Patrick says he's seen all of them. Yeah. But if you do want, to, but if you do want to see like an interesting exploration of religion of vis a vis horror, Midnight Mass is yeah. highly recommended. I think in particular, um, Hamish Linklater's uh, uh, performance of the priest does echo the stalker a little bit, and that yes, the that priest's mission is less about actually guiding people to God than to being the vessel through which miracles are done. And it's an interesting reflection of those themes when you see it in a more explicitly religious context, because here it's trying, the stalker is, is an atheist, atheistic story, but it's trying to show you that people have all kinds of things that they can't see that they believe in anyway, and that you are not exempt from faith at all. The world, because of how harsh it is, often economically, forces you to believe in things that you can't see. And you have to grapple with your own understanding of that or be completely swept over in the tide. Well, so this is, I think, where the, the book also, the, the film picks up on some of what the book is doing, which is... um. One of the things the book is asking, and, and from what I gather, other Strugatsky works also sort of like tiptoe around this, is, is is humanity capable of any kind of utopia? Can humanity deliver itself from its own predicaments? And the answer they're beginning to point to in the book, and I think the writer just enunciates outright, is that there is something about humanity that independent of ideology is profoundly broken and therefore anything they do this is kind of why they're sort of why the writer doesn't think the wish granter does shit and why the the scientist is terrified of the wish granter is that any person who walks up to the wish granter it'll somehow do the monkey paw thing either it what what the what the wish granter will realize that they want is either so base and unimportant that it won't make a damn bit of difference in the world, uh, or it'll unleash a nightmare. But it won't produce anything good. 
Um, well, and pardon. Well, I had a question about that actually yeah. because of the way I read one of the stories that gets told um, throughout this. Uh, multiple times they bring up the stalker porcupine. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think por- porcupine went through with it, right? Like, and it worked, and that was the, that was what happened to. So that's what happened to him, right? Right. So here's the way I read this. I guess we haven't gotten to the meat grinder yet, but <laughs> uh, in in the book, this isn't optional, which is which is a very interesting change for the movie. But um, the, the room before the room, basically, is known as the meat grinder, and in the book, it's require it it requires uh, you know a sacrifice essentially to be able to get through it because it like has a reset timer basically but in in the movie we see them pass through it without actually having you know person wasn't everyone made it through alive when porcupine who they talk about having one time left the zone and instantly become super rich but then a week later killed himself now part of the way that i read that is that the way they talk about the room is it knowing and understanding your deepest desire. And that is the thing it will grant you. Mm -hmm. Porcupine had his brother with him and his brother was killed by the killed by the meat grinder. So ultimately what what I'm assuming is happening here, what they're trying to get at there is the reason that Porcupine ends up killing himself is that he was probably trying his damnedest to wish for his brother back. Mm Mm-hmm. My assumption there is that he was trying to externalize that and maybe say it, whatever, like concentrate on that. But what the wish grander gave him was his truest, deepest desire, which was to be rich. And he couldn't deal with that that truth of being like my in that moment after having just lost my sibling. Mm-hmm. What I really wanted was still money. Right. Yeah. What And that's what why he ends up taking his own life. Right. If we look at the wish granter in the context of this movie, what we're understanding is not that it grants wishes, but that it shows you yourself and that some people are not actually ready to see themselves unvarnished in that way, which is why the stalker hasn't gone to it. Ultimately, he doesn't (laughs) want to know. (laughs) Well, and at the end is why, like when his wife says, "Uh, if you want, you can take me. And he's like, but I can't. (laughs) what if you what fail if you too? fail too yeah, yeah. Oh. right so yeah he's a he's a he's a priest a, ter- a terrified of his own uh god in in yeah. a lot of ways but well especially when he, he if, even just the use of the word fail is like an interesting way is it a failure if like the truth of yourself like i mean like i don't know what yeah. does it mean to is it a test in, that you're passing or failing in, or is it just understanding a truth of your, of yourself assuming Again, assuming yeah. is this thing, assuming this thing is telling you an actual truth yeah. and is not right. just a Lovecraftian right. alien artifact. Where, yeah, it's where, not where, where where it's it's away, you know. But under the assumption, under the assumption that it is pulling your deepest desire, I think the failure that he's talking about here is we have this thing that it could, in theory, end suffering for the world. Right? Does anyone in humankind, does anyone exist that that? Ending that suffering would be their true desire, right? Mm-hmm. Like that is what he sees as failures. That the, that's what the stalker sees as failures. That he doesn't know if there will ever be that person. And if you're not that person, you have failed the test of the the wish room, right? 
Yeah. And well, even even there, but nobody went through with it. So I also right. like there's other. Uh, That's also the other failure is that, like, yeah, not being yeah. able to confront whatever your truest uh, self and truest desire like is. Accepting judgment, you know, like yes. you're you're not able, you don't don't have the mental and moral fortitude to go up to Saint Paul and tell him that you're ready to be judged. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. and like that is something that he also sees as a as a particular and specific failure is not taking the journey, but not being strong enough. The, the scene, the scenes right before they reach the witch grantor are some of my favorite in the movie, just in terms of their aesthetics. And in particular, the scene where they cross the, the sand dunes and then just sort of sit in the precipice of the witch grantor and an entire rainstorm bursts, the clouds oh burst God, open, yeah. it rains over them and they just sit Almost. and experience it. Almost in defiance, doesn't the writer right before that say, like, uh, like listen to the stillness mm-hmm. or something like that? It's like the line before, and then the, like, sky opens up as to say, like, yeah, here's some stillness. Here's some fucking rain. Yeah, the movie for me is, like, encapsulated in that moment in miniature where it's these people letting themselves be subjected to nature and then yeah. trying to figure out what, if anything, that means about themselves. Or if it's even dire- directly related. Yeah. So the one thing that I'll throw in here to complicate okay. this, Kato, is that that is the writer taking someone else's story and telling you its meaning to explain his own reading of what the Wish Granter does. Like, right. to a degree, the game is being played there as well, in that... This isn't his story. He didn't know Porcupine. Uh, it's a story the the stalker uh, knows and has, has has told and has shared around. But the writer is here to explain, like, let me tell you the meaning of this story. Uh, let me interpret it for you. But that's a really double-edged thing. Like, you could say, like, is that is that the Strugatskis right. sort of emerging from behind the curtain and being like, okay. So at the end of Roadside Picnic... He doesn't save the world, okay? You got it. <laughs> right. This is how the wish granter works. <laughs> that's but, that's the I it kind of I enjoyed that part. I was like, oh wow, they chose the canonical ending for their book, yeah. like in in the film. <laughs> but it it could also be that like the writer is deeply invested in this sort of defensive futility. Uh, that he, his like the 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 burden he is carrying is this sense of the meaninglessness of of modern life mm-hmm. uh and so this is why he's he's saying that because th- what he's responding to is the professor <laughs> the professor has, <laughs> who has brought a nuke oh my god to the but zone. did he bring it though this is always no, he found is, it he found it he found it on site he That's found good. it on site yes. right which i feel like someone else brought a nuke to the zone which is oh shit you know i need to, the part where the phone rings. Yeah. Oh my and God. the writer picks it up without thinking Just and like, is oh, like, yeah. no, this isn't the clinic and hangs <laughs> up. And then they all sit there and slowly realize the phone, the phone worked fucking and works? was connected. <laughs> I love that scene. <laughs> I love that so much because I hate the writers. <laughs> Sorry. So does this movie. <laughs> Rightfully so. <laughs> Uh, there's been some great anti-writer writing content out there, you know, some, some New York Times pieces, some, some other, other op-eds about the act of creating fiction, but the, this one I think has a contempt for the tendency of writers to be cynical, 
I just think that they've got things figured out. Like the point of the zone is that you don't have shit figured out. You will never have shit figured out. There's stuff beyond your understanding. So every time the writer, like especially like in the right before the rainstorm scene, he says there is this field of stillness and then nature openly defies him for even attempting to classify something. Yeah, that's very good. Yeah. Well, the part that I felt extremely exposed by was where where the writer basically is like, so if I'm so damn smart, why do I need to? Why do I need people to acclaim what I write to prove it to myself? What's Boy, the point of this? I wish I could fucking tell you. <laughs> and I was like, shit. <laughs> this movie called me out. <laughs> I didn't need to get read like this by Tarkovsky. <laughs> Old ass Russian dudes need to stay quiet about my need for other people to validate me. <laughs> but so I think, but I think this ca- this complicates enormously. Like I think it's a really sharp reading of the porcupine story that the writer gives you. But it's also one that he's sort of been using as his like talisman to ward off the meaning of the story in the zone mm-hmm. to say that like that nothing is possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, that your your desires will always be so base mm-hmm. and menial that no matter what vision you bring with you into the zone, that's still just an invention of your conscious mind. Your subconscious is still going to be there. A greedy little reptile, mm-hmm. uh, you know, <laughs> trying to get whatever appetite currently is underserved. Um, and it won't, it won't bring about any meaningful change to the broader world. Yeah, because if you look at the economic conditions that stalker is living in, a ton of money is something that could probably change a stalker's life, like genuinely change their life. And the way that the writer makes the audience think less of this character for wanting to have economic stability does also say a lot about, like, this writer has had a successful writing career and finds it meaningless. How is that not just a commentary on his own desire for money? <laughs> you know? Yeah. It, it says a lot about, like, the, the sort of level of inequality that these characters exist in that wanting to change your own circumstances can be deemed as a selfish act because the circumstances overall are so bad. Also, uh, fuck the wish granter. Like life is about like downplaying your base instincts and like choosing things (laughs) that are above them. Like the notion that you can like, you can like, you can just not have those base instincts and you're, you're, you're sinfully and like mortally flawed because like, that's fuck off. Yeah. Like that's, you know, both God exists and hell exists. Well then fuck off. You know what I mean? Like, sorry. We live Uh, in a society. If if I, if I in the moment choose my, choose my dead brother to come back over the fact that like, I would also like to be rich. Like I made the conscious choice in the face of any wish to have my brother come back. And that counts for something. So fuck off wish granted. I'm actually a hundred (laughs) percent with you on this. Like there is a, there is an anti-cynical reading of this movie that uses like the character's reverence for the zone and the reverence for things they can't see to subvert like the things that the writer especially are literally saying, which is that, okay, well, maybe my base instinct and desire from the wish granter is to be rich. Maybe if I went to the, I personally, Gita Jackson, went to the wish granter, it would grant my wish of everyone being nice to me instead of solving world <laughs> hunger. Um, is that necessarily wrong though? Is it wrong for me to want people to be nice to me? <laughs> I don't, I don't think it is. I don't think it's wrong to have these desires but because we are not driven by our base desires we can make change happen in the world we can do things like we are not actually beholden to an esoteric zone where miracles can happen we can make miracles happen 
We just do it. But this is where, and, I, and this is where the film's like relationship, uh, to like its own political context, starts getting really complicated, right? Like to an extent, what the writer is driving at is some of the same points that the Strugaskis are driving at, which is that like ideology can't fix the destructive bent of humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, that even if you boil it down to bringing about like material improvements in people's circumstances, people's desires will still drive them to want and take more uh, and to bring harm into the world. And that will happen no matter how you change those circumstances. Mm -hmm. And that is sort of, that that sort of touches on on the notion that this is coming from, it's a, it's a Moss film picture uh, it, you know, there's an ideological project at work and has been under work for quite some time in the Soviet Union to say, like, we can create um, an, a durable and better existence for humanity. And this film has one character sort of arguing, eh, even if you did that, they'd still fuck it up because they are this way. And then the film is also <laughs> the film is also being like, but what about Jesus? <laughs> Uh, which there's, there's a little bit of, but, or more, the film is, is pointing back to, okay, so we need, we do need something greater than ourselves to believe in, because if you look too deeply within like the human individual, you do eventually get back to this layer of selfishness and, uh, like, like baseness, but it is when you begin believing in, the divine or, or something akin to it uh, that you can begin freeing yourself uh, from that. At least that's like one mm-hmm. sort of nascent reading of the picture I have. Um, and, but I, but I think to me, that was a tension I started to pick up on in this film, which is that like you have the writer being this, um, <coughs> this voice of despair over the death of the myth of progress, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And then you have a lot of things in this film, both in terms of narration, uh, the stalker's own direct responses, uh, conjuring up this notion that, for lack of a better world, um, the soul has worth uh, mm-hmm. beyond beyond the physical. For me, I, I can't, I think the sort of anti-cynical reading of the movie that I take away from it not the first time I watched it. The first time I just think mm-hmm. I was overwhelmed by the visuals and just sort of the richness of the visuals that all I could do was sort of soak it all in. But this time I can't, I have to, I think about it in in terms of the, the final shots of the movie where the daughter is at the table and she reaches out to a glass and very slowly it moves towards her. Done with maggots. We love maggots, baby. Um, the only special effect shot in the entire movie. I hope that was worth <clears throat> two hours and 40 something minutes to get there. Uh, what an impressive special effect shot it was too. But was there, was there an earlier special effects shot? I'm sorry. I just remembered this thing and I remembered. I when think he the smash the- cut to color is the closest you get to anything strongly Ooh. technical. Yeah. There was like a one, one cut that I guess was probably just luck mm-hmm. that I have screenshotted here. Oh, please show um, me. 
This is before. Oh, this is yeah. as the writer's going up to the to the building, and then after he's turned back, and oh. in between what in between these two shots, what happens is the stalker gives his. So you, in in the first one, we see the 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 writer walking up to a building in the distance, and the second one, the writer's back, uh, uh, in the foreground, in the background where the where the building was and you can still kind of see it through this like immense amount of fog which i wasn't sure whether or not that was just like a practice like did they get giant smoke machines to make this happen because the way it happens is it pans away from the building to the stalker and he gives his speech about the zone and Mm -hmm. then it pans back and you have this mysterious fog having rolled in and it feels like one of the first times nature is responding to their uh kind of existence in the zone yeah I'm not sure if that's an effect shot. I'd have to look it up, but it definitely gives the, the viewer the same sort of like feeling yeah, of a, as, a, yeah. as an actual effect shot. So <laughs> it's a done half a dozen of the other. But uh, the, the glass thing really stands out as something deliberately constructed in a way that yes. the rest of the movie is not deliberately constructed. Um, a lot of the scenes in the movie, you can tell they just kind of put the camera down and we're like, actors, act, go ahead. <laughs> and they kind of let, don't cut anything. Um, but that that scene to me... So the the stalker's reverence to the zone is dependent upon it being a, a completely localized and understood space that is discreet from the rest of his life. But like not even he knows that his daughter has been touched by the zone. Like the zone it is not contained, you know, like the zone exists outside of the zone and our progeny are influenced by the things that we take in from whatever zone we go to and they embody it. So I can't necessarily, I do see the uh, the roadside picnics, very strong and clear ideological sort of message uh, about ideology, that we were always eating from the garbage can of all time, the garbage, uh, all the time, the garbage can called ideology. You know, that's literally <laughs> just what roadside picnic is. But it's also like, well, there is this child and this child is something else because the zone exists. And maybe this child, even though in Ritzai Picnic they don't understand her and are terrified of her, um, maybe this child will create something else, something different, something that isn't this. And what that child will will create uh, is a superhero origin story. God Um, damn it! This is a stalker. It's a prequel to the MCU. We heard it here first. Oh this is the God. first one. They call him the stalker. <laughs> what? They just gender gender flip Magneto. Comes out of his own instead of the Holocaust. You know? God, I would pay real money to watch Disney buy the stalker intellectual property and do this. Oh my God. <laughs> I'd be back on board with the MCU, baby. <laughs> Can you believe they cast Jared Harris as the zone? God! Um, <laughs> Jesus Christ! Psychic, I'm experiencing psychic damage right now. (laughs) He's about to KO me. (laughs) I still need to watch that Chernobyl show. I watched the first episode and and then never got around to the Yo, it's suppressing as shit. It's very good. It's suppressing as shit. Not just because the Chernobyl, obviously, but also like, you remember right when Trump was elected and every Friday there'd be an insane like slate of news that would just come out starting Mm -hmm. at like 4.30. It's like uh, an entire show about experiencing that. (laughs) <laughs> oh, fuck. great yeah. <laughs> Lo- love to be love to be emotionally oppressed uh just like every i was in the gawker office still at that time 
And every Friday I would hear like everybody that worked at Gawker, essentially, or special projects, all of them start laughing at once. And I'd be like, better go to CNN.com, <laughs> see what the fuck's <laughs> happening. What did Maggie tweet today? Oh, boy. <laughs> but so before we get to the very end, though, I also do want to call out um, the return of the stalker's wife. Uh, we, we have, first of all, having left all of our explorers at the, unable to cross the threshold of the, the wish granter um, in a sequence of just incredible shots. We find them now back at the bar. Just guys being dudes <laughs> hanging out. <laughs> And she settled all of their emotional baggage. Like they're ready. They're ready to face the world. Like, Mm. you know, they had their revelations time to get a beer. Mm. It is. It is. It cracks me up because there is such a she's just picking her husband up from work. And like they're all just sort of sitting there uh, knocking a couple back after a long day of coming face to face uh, with the. mendacity of your own existence mm. well, what'd you um, do today at work honey nothing <laughs> just had got at these guys through an existential panic attack nothing no big deal no big deal <laughs> so she they they go home she she takes uh she, she takes the stalker home uh they go home as a family the dog comes with uh the dog is fine uh great ending for the dog <laughs> great ending for the dog yep yo we is this on the way home when they cut to color yeah, and the POV is on Monkey. Yeah, and it looks like for a second she's walking, which was very funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a split second, you think maybe the stalker went in and uh, yeah. asked or somehow asked for her to be able to walk again. Well, um, but then... Actually, uh, I am curious, because the professor says the word on the stalker is his kid has no legs. And so when we find we saw her in a bed, we would have had no idea. Like I can't like like the pan only when the go, when it goes across the bed to show her sleeping. It's only shoulders up. Mm-hmm. We don't see her get out of the bed. So I, there's a part of me that's also looking at that, and I'm like, did she always just walk with crutches? Like, or is this already like a state change? Um, I don't know. But yeah, hmm. but like the the shot of her being carried, yeah. uh, does look like she's walking and yeah, now, now the zone is sort of the, the zone cam has followed, followed us out, uh, as long as it holds on the girl. Just, I don't know. Whenever I look at that girl and think about that girl, I just think about what the stalker does not even know that he is bringing home. You know, I, I feel like there's a lot of talk people my age, I'm 32 about how we've been trained for uh, a sort of a work and economic situation that does not really exist anymore. Like people don't, mm-hmm. we, we were trained and sort of went to job training, which is like high school and middle school public education under the assumption that we would be getting careers and then working at those jobs for the rest of our lives. And we've embodied the hopes and dreams of our parents, but then emerged out into a world that does not have any use for this. Like, I don't need to know how to balance like a checkbook. <laughs> You know, it's a lot of things I learned writing a letter. We had multiple classes on how to do that in middle school. You know, I've never needed I needed to know how to do that maybe once or twice. And I forgot. So I had to Google what a letter looked like. <laughs> I can remember that the return address went on what side. I never know. Yeah. You know, but also there's two different formats for letters. And so it doesn't matter. So it doesn't uh, matter. Yeah. God. But, yeah. Like. Well, and and so there there is this element of 
like there's something miraculous and or terrifying about the child the fact that she's you know you'd certainly read the um we've already seen a crown of thorns uh in this film you could certainly <laughs> read the gold headscarf as uh having an angelic quality mm-hmm. um i i saw one interpretation i think i think this might have been in the criterion's essay uh where the descriptions we get of the wish granter are of a golden sphere and framed in the shot she's a golden sphere mm-hmm. uh in in the headscarf um it's it's interesting uh what what they're doing with the kid at the end but 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 right before we get to that the stalker's wife puts him to bed and he has that sort of like what if you fail to and he sort of passes out in despair <laughs> and then she turns to the camera and just explains like okay i know it seems like my life is dog shit but actually it's pretty good mm-hmm. and i knew it would be this way um but but she she gets to something that's come up with a few other places uh, in this film, which which is that happiness isn't really a stable goal. That like sadness, that bittersweet is is what enriches uh, our life. Where uh, to quote directly from the the picture, um, I knew that that there would be a lot of grief, but sorrowful happiness is better than a gray and sad life. Perhaps I invented that afterwards. And then he, the stalker came up to me and said, come with me. And I went and I never regretted it after that. And there's been a lot of grief and it was frightening and it was shameful, but I've never regretted it. And I've never envied anybody. It's just such a fate, such a life, uh, such as us. Uh, And if there was no grief in our life, it would not be better. It would be worse Uh, because then there would be neither happiness nor hope. Um, and this is the other theme that this thing has been circling around, which is, uh, the nature of like sadness and hope, uh, in, in this picture. And even here, I think it's ambiguous. The fact that she even acknowledges maybe all of this is just post hoc justification for the way her life has gone. Mm-hmm. But in this moment, it's real to her mm-hmm. that, um, that all these things go together, that it's all one. And therefore, to an extent, these aren't things that these are unfixable, but not in the way the writer means the writer takes the, un, the, uh, the immutability of human nature as just being our doom mm-hmm. here. I think the counter argument is, well, the immutability is also what makes like life worth living. It reminds me a little bit of, um, of two things. One of which is more funny than the other. Um, the br- ending of brief, the brief and wondrous life of Oscar. Wow. Which is by a now canceled writer, but it's still a very good book. Um, where he does a riff, the main character, Oscar Wow, dies um, by uh, colonialist gangsters, essentially. And in the end, though, it tracks his many, many attempts to form romantic and sexual attachments with women, but he hasn't had sex yet. At the end, he has sex, finally. And the narrator, who is not Oscar Wow, says, it talks about talking to him about losing his virginity. And he does the a play on the Apocalypse Now thing. Oh, the horror, the horror. But instead, it's, oh, the beauty, the beauty. Where this character, Oscar Wow, in that book, has had an abject, incredibly difficult life that ends with him dying in an anonymous killing field. But even so, there is still beauty in such a life. There's still worth living, even the life like that. 
And um, weirdly enough, just because we were just talking about this, Rob, it also reminds me of the speech in Passion, the Buffy episode, (laughs) Mm -hmm. where it's like, what is life without passion? These high highs and these low lows, these are the things that we have life experiences to have. I mean, I, I look at sort of like a decade, a decade under the influence, a decade of me being addicted to alcohol. And I think about the kinds of experiences I had where at the time I was thinking, Ugh, life is just so boring, blah, 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 blah. But then I look back at the things that I was doing and it was like, I'm so sad that my, you know, dependency masked me from being able to understand that actually like the happiness and the misery were coming hand in hand. I was just in my fucking 20s, you know, (laughs) I was just doing 20 something things. And that means, you know, both experiencing heartbreak and experiencing moments of great joy and togetherness. And this is a ex- very extreme presentation of that idea in Stalker. But I think this speech for me, it's what makes it so difficult to read this as like a, a sad or hopeless movie. Because even in their loss of hope, there is some kind of hope that life is worth living anyway. So... Ultimately, like, I enjoy the way this movie is this, uh, like, recursion of contradictions that, like, depending on, like, I come away from it and there's there's parts of what the writer says that that really do resonate, not just about writing, uh, but just with with human condition. I find I want to believe in sort of the the messages here at the end uh where that these are not things to these are not curses but they they are um sort of the wellspring of human joy as well um i don't know like i don't know if i i don't know if i'm convinced by that reading i don't and the film i don't think is is trying to convince you of anything right like the film defies one reading um and i think that's that you know, is, is part of what, you know, contributes to its, its greatness. Um, but it is, I find parts of this so deeply affecting. Um, and I guess the, the thing I'm kind of curious to ask you all here at the end is why is it so important that, why does it, why does it take a story in this structure to unpack all this so beautifully, right? Like, why do we need to? Because you you could you could imagine this as like a stage play, right? As mm-hmm. these characters sort of stepping on the stage and reading these lines, I am curious, like, why? Like, why does it? What does it gain from being set in this paranormal? reality of the zone and having characters literally swim through the river of shit um <laughs> and go go across the creepy dunes like because because this is this is the stuff that's going like that stays with a lot of people if you if you look up like pictures of stalker you will see the characters standing in the dunes yeah uh and i'm, and I'm curious like i think if you if you took the script by itself you'd still have a lot for people to chew on but what makes it a masterpiece is that is in it is the script is delivered in the middle of uh you know th- these things you've already alluded to Gita, you know, which is these these beautiful like long takes and the the fact that the camera just like holds on these things uh and mm-hmm. lets you sort of steep in them 
Uh, and I'm I'm curious, like, why like why do you think that's the element that lifts all this from beyond like pretentious philosophizing about uh, about humanity? Kato, I think you know a little bit more of the technical aspect than I do, just as I haven't actually touched a camera since I graduated <laughs> from college. My my Canon is somewhere in this apartment. I don't know where the charger for the battery is, though. Um, but I- for me, I think there is a meditative aspect of watching a movie that I find incredibly gripping in particular. Um, and like, I clearly love movies enough to get a degree <laughs> in being good at knowing about movies, but it... it for this movie, because it's so much of it is like esoteric bonmos, sort of delivered slowly in Russian, it needs to give you a lot of space to process them, and a lot of and it wait it wants to guide your processing of those thoughts through images. To me, this has a lot to do with sort of the tradition of montage and tradition of collage and cinema feels more closely related to the man with the camera eye than a lot of of other films from this period. And that it is trying to dispense its philosophy. It has the ability to dispense its philosophy through dialogue, but it's also trying to dispense it through abstract, esoteric, untranslated imagery. So when the characters are standing in the dunes and the rain pours over them, it's expressing a thought that can only be expressed through that moving image. I couldn't translate that for you, but it's because we have gone through the same journey as the stalker that we are now able to understand the speech of film and we know it innately. And then we also feel that kind of exhausted panic and sadness that he's feeling near the end where it's all these heightened emotions where you've been on this journey and it didn't really have an ending but it did end something and yet and yet and yet and these images that don't have any real explanation become the sort of supporting argument for whatever it is that you want to say about this movie like it it is it is through hearing the dialogue that we understand ideology but the imagery through which it is expressed. And there's just a a lot of things and a lot of things that a camera can do that you can't necessarily do on stage. So much of this movie is about light. It is about the interplay of light and darkness and is about light as it passes through spaces, the light of the sun as it goes over a space. And the, it requires in a lot of ways the kind of meditation that being in a black box um, of a cinema can inspire in a person where it really is you in like a 20 foot screen. You do feel like you're floating in space and just observing this like a distant God. Um, I feel like the best plays are equally transportive, but it needs the lens of a camera specifically to frame things so as to guide your meditation throughout these ideas. I think, um, I think so much of why this works really well as a film is that the zone has to be its own, um, like presence in a way where if it was a stage play sets aren't going to do the same thing necessarily like you can do some of that through dialogue and the way that the characters react to it but really seeing nature and the sort of 
um, leftover, you know, the remnants of humanity's touch on this place being overtaken by nature is part of the kind of thrust of the idea of like, you know, the combining the, the natural sublime with, uh, divinity, right? Like the, 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 the kind of religious overtones of this piece, I feel like come through the most in the way that it treats these landscapes and in the way that you see, um, the, like you mentioned before, the kind of gross parts of it, of when they were walking in through that water, that is not, nature being gross that is man's detritus like Mm -hmm. affecting nature in that moment right um when you when we see the fish at the end and that oil slick starts to go over it right it's like oh now this place has been touched again by human hands Mm -hmm. um and i feel like so many of those images are really important for getting across that idea of the divine and faith that go throughout this entire movie that yeah like a stage play could could speak to some of these things but i feel like images do such a great job of it in in this film freaking love movies man yeah (laughs) i fucking love them so much i every time i think about this movie i also want to watch solaris but i just you never have three hours free (laughs) 245 maybe Three, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> well, the trick is to not notice uh, the last, like, increment of time to be, like, to do, to do the Patrick thing of, like, two-hour movie. Yeah. And don't notice that there's 59 minutes next I to it or something. do like not that. see it. Like- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, I, uh, uh, when the, the It Chapter 2 came out, that movie is bad and obnoxiously long. It's, like, two hours and 40 minutes. And Yeah. But, uh, uh. And, and my uh, wife was uh, pregnant at the time with our, with our second kid, and so like she's a big stickler on like you know what is you know what's a perfect movie ninety three minutes like, exactly I'll, I'll right. give you I'll give you three minutes of buffer room but like ninety three minutes and but she really wanted to watch it and uh, I remember when I I just like I just rented it on iTunes and I started playing it and she's like oh we're gonna finally watch it. like yeah yeah the kids you know just went to bed early let's watch it and then she got up to go to the bathroom for I know she was pregnant so like the, the ninth time pauses mm-hmm. it and every time i pause it i was like go away time code like get out of here um and at some point she got up like so i was like does that say two hours and 35 <laughs> minutes like what are we doing here and i was like well we already started we could just you know we could st- we could stop this or we could just keep going she's like fine God, I saw... And then the movie sucked, so it was, you know, yeah. not even... You know. There's absolutely no reason for that movie to be that long. It just, they keep bringing in the kid actors, and it's like, go away! Shh, we already saw those guys! <laughs> <laughs> we don't need them again! I know everybody likes the kids, but that's no reason to bring them back. You know, just a, why also... We'll have a different podcast where we talk about how much we don't like this movie later, but why would you... Split up this movie. Like the important thing about the book is that the two childhood and adulthood happen concurrently. Like they were literally right next to each other on the page. I, it doesn't make more, any sense to me. I, 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 the the more the simpler explanation is the original script was written by I, I, the guy who uh, wrote and directed the new Bond film. Mm, um, Fukunaga. Yeah, and like the first the script for the first movie is like fucking pretty rock solid, um, mm-hmm. and was kind of hard to screw up. Then they yeah. had to write a second script because he left to go do. Other yeah. stuff, um, and it didn't. It didn't really pan out. Didn't really work out. No, Bill Hader looked so good, and for nothing. great cast, wonderful yeah. cast, wonderful <laughs> yeah. cast. Um, anyway, sorry, Rob. No, it's fine. Like, 
I don't have much left, but as we were sort of talking about those last elements of it, something that occurred to me a lot as I was watching it is uh, between this and Roadside Picnic, like, on the one hand, you can see the parts that inspire the video game um, and sort of spawn, not just not just that game, but, like, there's a lot of the uh, vision of, like, the Metro series is built off of imagery that we see deployed in Stalker and uh, sort of the notion of the way stalkers exist as laid out in roadside picnic. But on the other hand, man, what a hard fucking medium games are to mm-hmm. get across like meaning, uh, in, in this way. Like it is, it is such a strange thing that like seeing three guys cross a field, throwing this little tethered nuts out, and like slowly, like deliberately, just cross endlessly for like ten minutes, a frame of film, uh, to to get across the screen. So effectively communicates a world and a feeling and like just a way of being and how hard games have to work to recreate that. Mm-hmm. And it, like, it's not not to get it like relative merits of different media but it did just it it did just occur to me that like both the printed page and then the uh the the frame of the film are able to do so much because they control so much in the video game patrick can walk into that anomaly like i want to see what happens game over yeah (laughs) And and to accomplish similar like feats of like meaning and messaging, you have to account for that, right? Yeah. You have to account like that there has to be it has to work despite the fact that Patrick is going to say, like, I'm gonna fuck with that thing. Yeah. Or that didn't happen. Quick load. <laughs> Someone um, in the chat mm-hmm. said we could bait the military into fighting this base. Let's do that for 30 minutes. Yeah, it's like um Movies aren't as uh, don't allow you to be as directly confrontational to them while you're interacting with them. You can heckle a movie, but it's not going to react to you. You know, like it's (laughs) you can't say "fuck you, stalker." I was here for some anomalies. It's not going to react to you. It's just going to keep doing what it's doing, and you're not going to be able to do anything about it. Video games, in order to be as feel as complete as Stalker the movie and Roadside Picnic the book, feel in their tone and message and ideological approach uh, they have to also account for people who are just playing a video game (laughs) who are truly 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 not interested in anything other than just playing like a really good and interesting traditional shooter uh with some cool like oh it's got some weird stuff in it you know like it's it, in some ways, soccer feels very, really perfect to become a video game because of the things you mentioned, the the tone and the world building and the existence of stalkers. Just like that's a mission system that just sets itself up. But and also, I mean, the thing that really strikes me is like when you said that everyone just is so declarative in the movie. It's like, yeah, they do all talk like video game characters. So they're just like, hello, here is my whole deal. <laughs> like, you yeah. know, it's. Doesn't but also, but also, yeah. video game characters can very rarely talk that way because, again, the audience won't sit for it. Like yeah. the audience will heckle it and be like, "This is dumb bullshit." And frequently, it will be because, like, a lot of times, people writing video games are like trying to write equivalent speeches on like a postage stamp space of game uh, to to get it across. But yeah, like 
Well, and, despite, and also in a video game, you're like, there's no dramatic care, like camera movement to like entertain or engage the audience. It's like you're staring forward at like an NPC flap its mouth at you. And yeah, like, that's like, yeah. a, that's like a much harder way to engage with even like a well-written speech, like a piece of text is like either like listen to like, do I need to listen to this VO finish it? Or like, I already read it. Like, yeah. can I just move on to the, you know what I mean? Like yeah. those are all the parts where like both like perspective shift and like the player's agency, like just completely underwrite what are like much more effortless or at least like uh, more forced by the, by the creative and other mediums that like we've engaged with like this similar story set. Yeah. And also games only have looked as good and as photorealistic as they do uh, like right now. <laughs> You know, difficult to do. <laughs> and it's excruciatingly them. difficult to reproduce yeah. that level of fidelity. Yeah. Yes, like, it, it really, 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 really is. Yeah. Um, whereas, yeah, I'm just I'm just imagining like, okay, you need to create all these single use models and textures for, look, you need to create Thompson gun, but like cover it in water and rust and uh, show me what that would look like. Um, but yeah, but it, like, I don't know when, when you were talking about uh, early in the episode, uh, I don't know. It was like Gita, you, Gita and Patrick were talking and started talking about the way that this movie's kind of just like, look at it. Look at this. Like the fact that it has the power to do that and that it's like, it's accepted that if you're sitting down, if you're buckling in for a movie like this, you're here to look at it. And the fact that like so few games can make a similar presumption of patience uh, in, in that regard. Um, to to let it let something unveil itself in the way that soccer does. Um, it's it, it it just got me thinking about like this film inspires so much. Uh, this the story and framework inspires so much, and yet so many parts of it are so difficult to reproduce. Uh, in in the things that have been inspired. Um, so that's something yeah. that sort of is is hanging around in the back of my mind as well. Um, but for now we'll leave monkey. And uh, all all the mysteries of the zone in in the film behind as we focus on shepherding Patrick through Stalker Shadow of Chernobyl for our upcoming Waypoint 101. Uh, we started well by now. Hopefully there will be another episode. Uh, another yeah, we'll, stream. Yeah, yeah, we'll have done it. We'll have done it at least another time by the time this this publishes. But I think we'll. We, we had a good enough time that, you know, again, not committing to the don't commit to the full let's play until all of a sudden we're like nine hours in. It's like, well, the game's only like 11 hours long. I think we could probably just finish it like that's I, I see that happening to I us. Admit, uh, here. I'm actually angry how good you are at it, too. <laughs> I'm actually a little bit pissed. I was like, I thought this was going to be harder for Patrick. There's going to be a little bit more of like, ooh, like look at him coming to grips with it. And like. Patrick's just like, oh, it's one of these games and just zipping around like doing stalker shit. And I'm like. Yeah, I'm just using my, my binocs in order to get in order to like look at those dogs, hit the run button and just sprint across the map like. <laughs> uh, I'm just no, I'm just imagining you start up stalker. Would you like to skip the uh, tutorial and skip get straight to the color section? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You know, I'm trying to think of maybe it's just because I'm like literally just having a moment right now with Remedy. But when I think about control, many of the things that we talked about during this podcast are the things I think I've been most in that game get translated into a video game-ness. But that is also a game that really cares about framing. 
very, very much. You can tell that the set, the oldest house they've built is designed so that when you come in through certain doorways and passageways, you will see specific things and they can use that perspective to fuck with you a lot. And they do, they have, they do as close as you can get to doing a a hard cut in that game, (laughs) especially in the Alan Wake DLC, um, when, when they do it and they do, they use it to like, to great effect to talk about Jesse's, the Jaden, the main character's belief in something bigger than herself. Um, and that is maybe tonally closer to Stalker than a lot of other games that I have played. But also, you know, like it's, it's interesting how Stalker has now functioned in our culture as equally this art house cinema science fiction classic um, and also essentially like a D&D setting. Right. Like mm-hmm. I, I've done homebrews of a Power by Apocalypse games of uh, the sprawl where someone was like, what if we just brought in like a sort of stalker, you know, annihilation thing and like have Eastern Europe all just sort of be the zone. And it works incredibly and astonishingly well. It's because like the, some of this, this just the weird shit that happens there is compelling on its own. And that we're so blessed, we're, we're drowning in riches, that on top of that, there are, like, some very serious people have, like, sat down and made some very good art out of it. Um, it also did just occur to me, maybe the other uh, angle of attack on Stalker is, um, and fittingly enough, like, uh, Disco Elysium is a game assembled of characters speechifying, and indeed uh, is Estonian, uh, by the way, or at least the, uh, the development team, parts of it are, and Huh, That's just huh. a coincidence, but Stalker mm. is shot largely in Estonia. Um, so, like, that's the other angle of attack. But in games, like, those those approaches have to come via different angles because it's hard to mm-hmm. have the same thing. Um, I guess and maybe Remedy can do it, uh, gated to some of the, you know, our mutual love of, of Remedy games. Because, like, they, at this point, have cultivated a fan base who are going to be like, yeah, all right. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love this bullshit. Ready for the um, weird shit. That's sort of what I kept hearing when I was asking on Twitter if I should play Max Payne 1 and 2 because I was literally 11 years old when those games came out. And like my my brother was playing them, my older brother, but I was not allowed to. And uh, those movies obviously, very, those games obviously very self-consciously inspired by by movies and film noir. And like they, they know they're not a real representation of New York in any degree, but they still try to capture a New Yorkness. But most of what people had to talk to me about was, um, oh, yeah, the, the, the plot is totally crazy. The plot goes to all these crazy places. And it's like, that may be true. But I think what makes Remedy more interesting than just having exciting plots is that they are capital A about things. Even their sort of sad uh, dead wife cop story. It's capital <laughs> A about something. It's about being that kind of man. And then, you know, Alan Wake is also self very self-consciously about being a writer. And then Control is also about finding your place in the world. And they strive to show that through every aspect of game play and game making that they can, especially as that lineage goes on. And like that is what connects it to like literature and cinema for me, where it's not just about showing you something cool, which I think a lot of people come to the roadside picnic and stalker four, but being capital A about something, those cool things. You know, it's the stupid meme about Gundam where it's like, "Whoa, cool robot!" And it was yeah. like, "Actually, war is bad." You know. If I got to the wish granter, 
I would wish to show Andre Tarkovsky Remedy Games. Oh, I'll bet it would go over real well. I'll bet that would be a monkey paw curling. This is like giving Undertale to the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so, yeah, we'll be back uh, with more of our uh, Stocktober uh, stuff here on Waypoint, uh, Waypoint Pl- the Waypoint Plus feed. Uh, as always, it's made possible by you, our Waypoint Plus backers, and we're so grateful for your support. We're aiming to do the Waypoint 101 next week. We might give ourselves a little gap to spend a bit more time with the game, so keep an eye out for Patrick's newsletter uh, to see what the schedule ends up being. Um, until the, we take the next step of our Stocktober journey, um, I don't really have a good outro here. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought something, I thought something would come to me, but instead, wish, gra- wish granter. Oh <laughs> <Yeah>. no! Happiness free. <laughs> For all who want it. For all thank who you, want Kato. It. Yeah, there we go. As much as <laughs> as much as you can handle. Um, <laughs> that's not the line, but it's the spirit. Yeah. All right. Uh, Until next time, peace. Peace.